Chapter 10 The Perfect Storm of Dieting It is a hard matter, my fellow citizens, to argue with the belly since it has no ears. Plutarch How did I let this happen again? Oprah Winfrey There is nothing so universally desired in rich countries as flat abs. The more money we make and the more of it we give to the diet industry, the more impossible that ideal seems. Losing weight is the most popular New Year's resolution year after year, diet after forsaken diet. In the long run, the vast majority of dieters fail. Therefore, we are not going to guarantee you an eternally svelte body. But we can tell you which techniques are more likely to help you lose weight, and we'll start with the good news. If you're serious about controlling your weight, you need the discipline to follow these three rules. Number one, never go on a diet. Number two, never vow to give up chocolate or any other food. Number three, whether you're judging yourself or judging others, never equate being overweight with having weak willpower. You may not have kept your resolution to lose 10 pounds this year, but that doesn't mean you should take up a diet or swear off sweets. And you certainly shouldn't lose faith in your ability to accomplish other feats, because being overweight is not a telltale sign of weak willpower, even if most people think so. Ask a few modern Americans what they use self-control for, and dieting is likely to be the first answer. Most experts have made the same assumption for decades. At professional conferences and in scientific journal articles, when researchers have to give an example to illustrate some problem of self-control, they tend to pick dieting more often than any other sort of example. Recently, though, researchers have found that the relationship between self-control and weight loss is much less direct than everyone thought. They've discovered something we'll call the Oprah Paradox, in honor of the world's most famous dieter. Early in her career, when she was working as a newscaster, Oprah Winfrey's weight rose from 125 to 140 pounds. So she went to a diet doctor and was put on a 1,200 calories per day plan. She followed it, lost 7 pounds the first week, and within a month was back down to 125. But then she gradually put it back on. When she hit 212 pounds, she gave up solid food for four months subsisting on liquid diet supplements and got back down to 145 pounds. But within a few years, she was heavier than ever, at 237 pounds, and her journal was filled with prayers to lose weight. When she was nominated for an Emmy Award, she prayed for her rival talk show host Phil Donahue to win. That way, as she later recalled, I wouldn't have to embarrass myself by rolling my fat butt out of my seat and walking down the aisle to the stage. She had just about lost hope when she met Bob Green, a personal trainer, whereupon the two of them transformed each other's lives. He became a best-selling author of training regimens and recipes he used with Winfrey and began selling his own line of best-life food. Guided by Green and her personal chef, who wrote his own bestseller, and by the nutritionists and doctors and other experts on her show, Winfrey changed what she ate how she exercised, how she lived. She established weekly calendars of all her meals, 
specifying precisely when she would eat tuna, when salmon, when salad. Her assistants built her schedule around the meals and the workouts. She received emotional counsel from friends like Marianne Williamson, the spiritual writer, who discussed with her the relationship between weight and love. The result was displayed on the cover of Winfrey's magazine in 2005, a radiant, sleek woman weighing 160 pounds. Note, though, that this triumph still put her 20 pounds above what she weighed at the start of her first diet. Winfrey's success story was an inspiration both to her fans and to an anthropologist at Emory University, George Armelagos. He used it to illustrate an historic shift that he dubbed the King Henry VIII and Oprah Winfrey effect. In Tudor England, it wasn't easy keeping anyone as fat as Henry VIII. His diet required resources and labor from hundreds of farmers, gardeners, fishermen, hunters, butchers, cooks, and other servants. But today, even commoners can get as fat as King Henry VIII. In fact, poor people tend to be fatter than the ruling classes. Thinness has become a status symbol because it's so difficult for ordinary people to achieve unless they're genetically lucky. To remain thin, it takes the resources of Oprah Winfrey and a new array of vassals, personal trainer, chef, nutritionist, counselor, assorted assistants. Yet even that kingdom is no guarantee, as viewers of Oprah started to notice, and as Winfrey herself acknowledged in a refreshingly frank article four years after the celebratory cover. This time, her magazine's cover showed the old picture of herself at 160 pounds next to her current 200-pound self. I'm mad at myself, Winfrey told readers. I'm embarrassed. I can't believe that after all these years, all the things I know how to do, I'm still talking about my weight. I look at my thinner self and think, how did I let this happen again? She explained it as a combination of overwork and medical problems both of which could have depleted her willpower. But even then, Oprah Winfrey was obviously someone with self-discipline. She couldn't have kept the rest of her life going so successfully without self-control. She had extraordinary personal willpower, access to the world's finest professional advice, a cadre of dedicated monitors, plus the external pressure of having to appear every day in front of millions of people watching for any sign of weight gain. Yet despite all her strength and motivation and resources, she couldn't keep the pounds off. That's what we call the Oprah paradox. Even people with excellent self-control can have a hard time consistently controlling their weight. They can use their willpower to thrive in many ways, at school and work, in personal relationships, in their inner emotional lives, but they're not that much more successful than other people at staying slim. When Baumeister and his colleagues in the Netherlands analyzed dozens of studies of people with high self-control, they found that these self-disciplined people did slightly better than average at controlling their weight, but the difference wasn't as marked as in other areas of their lives. This pattern showed up clearly among the overweight college students in a weight loss program who were studied by Baumeister along with Joyce Erlinger, Will Crescioni, and colleagues at Florida State University. At the outset of the program, the students who scored higher on personality tests of self-control had a slight advantage. They started out weighing a little less and having better exercise habits than the people with lower self-control. And their advantage increased over the course of the 12-week program because they were better at following the rules to restrict eating and increase exercising. 
But while their self-discipline helped them control their weight, it didn't seem to make a huge difference either before or during the study. High self-control was better than low self-control, but not by much. And if the researchers had tracked the students after the weight loss program ended, no doubt many of them would have put the pounds right back on, just as Oprah Winfrey and so many other dieters have done. Their self-control would have been useful in helping them keep up the exercise routine, but exercising isn't enough to guarantee weight loss. Even though it seems logical that burning more calories would get rid of pounds, researchers have found that the body responds by craving more food. So increased exercise doesn't necessarily lead to long-term weight loss, but it's still worthwhile for lots of other reasons. Whether or not you have good self-control, whether or not you exercise, if you go on a diet, the odds are that you won't permanently lose weight. One reason is basic biology. When you use self-control to go to your inbox or write a report or go jogging, your body doesn't react viscerally. It's not physically threatened by your decision to pay bills instead of watch television. It doesn't care whether you're writing a report or surfing the web. The body might send you pain signals when you exercise too strenuously, but it doesn't treat jogging as an existential threat. Dieting is different. As the young Oprah Winfrey discovered, the body will go along with a diet once or twice, but then it starts fighting back. When fat lab rats are put on a controlled diet for the first time, they'll lose weight. But if they're then allowed to eat freely again, they'll gradually fatten up, and if they're put on another diet, it will take them longer to lose the weight this time. Then, when they once again go off the diet, they'll regain the weight more quickly than the last time. By the third or fourth time they go through this boom and bust cycle, the dieting ceases to work. The extra weight stays on even though they're consuming fewer calories. Evolution favored people who could survive famines. So once a body has gone through the experience of not getting enough to eat, it reacts by fighting to keep all the pounds it has. When you diet, your body assumes there's a famine and hangs on to every fat cell it can. The ability to lose weight through a drastic change in diet ought to be conserved as a precious one-time capability. Perhaps you'll need it late in life when your health or your survival will depend upon being able to lose weight. Instead of going for a quick weight loss today, you're better off using your self-control to make gradual changes that will produce lasting effects, and you have to be especially careful in your strategies. You face peculiarly powerful challenges at every stage of the self-control process, from setting a goal, to monitoring yourself, to strengthening your willpower. When they wheel over the dessert cart, you're not facing an ordinary challenge. It's more like the perfect storm. The first step in self-control is to establish realistic goals. To lose weight, you could look in the mirror, weigh yourself, and then draw up a sensible plan to end up with a trimmer body. You could do that, but few do. People's goals are so unrealistic that an English bookmaker, the William Hill Agency, has a standing offer to bet against anyone who makes a plan to lose weight. The bookmaker, which offers odds of up to 50 to 1, lets the bettors set their own targets of how much weight to lose in how much time. It seems crazy for a bookie to let bettors not only set the terms of the wager, but also control its outcome. It's like letting a runner bet on beating a target time he set himself. Yet despite these advantages, 
despite the incentive to collect payoffs that have exceeded $7,000, the bettors lose 80% of the time. Female bettors are especially likely to lose, which isn't surprising considering the unrealistic goals set by so many women. They look in the mirror and dream the impossible dream, a curvaceously thin body as it's known to researchers who puzzle over these aspirations. The supposed ideal of a 36, 24, 36 figure translates to someone with a size 4 hips, a size 2 waist, and a size 10 bust. Someone, that is, with ample breasts but little body fat, who must be either a genetic anomaly or the product of plastic surgery. With this as an ideal, it's no wonder that so many people set impossible goals. When you detest what you see in the mirror, you need self-control not to start a crash diet. You need to remind yourself that diets typically work at first, but fail miserably in the long run. To understand why, let's start with a strange phenomenon observed after the consumption of milkshakes in a laboratory. The what the hell effect. The people arrived at the lab in what researchers call a food-deprived state, which is more commonly known as hungry. They hadn't eaten for several hours. Some were given a small milkshake to take the edge off. Others drank two giant milkshakes with enough calories to leave a normal person feeling stuffed. Then both groups, along with other subjects who hadn't been given any kind of milkshake, were asked to serve as food tasters. That was a ruse. If research subjects know their food intake is being monitored by someone studying overeating, they suddenly lose their appetite and come across as pillars of virtuous restraint. So the researchers, pretending to be interested only in their opinions about the taste of different snacks, sat each one in a private cubicle with several bowls of crackers and cookies and a rating form. As the people recorded their ratings, they could eat as much from each bowl as they wanted, and if they finished them all, they could always tell themselves they were just trying to do a good, thorough job of rating the crackers and cookies. They didn't realize that the ratings didn't matter and that the researchers were just interested in how many cookies and crackers they ate, how the milkshakes affected them, and how the dieters in the group compared with the people who weren't on a diet. The non-dieters reacted predictably enough. Those who had just drunk the two giant milkshakes nibbled at the crackers and quickly filled out their ratings. Those who had drunk the one modest milkshake ate more crackers. And those who were still hungry after not eating for hours went on to chomp through the better part of the cookies and crackers. All perfectly understandable. But the dieters reacted in the opposite pattern. The ones who had downed the giant milkshakes actually ate more cookies and crackers than the ones who'd had nothing to eat for hours. The results stunned the researchers, who were led by Peter Herman. Incredulous, they conducted further experiments with similar results until they finally began to see why self-control in eating can fail even among people who are carefully regulating themselves. The researchers gave it a formal scientific term, counter-regulatory eating, but in their lab and among colleagues, it was known simply as the what-the-hell effect. Dieters have a fixed target in mind for their maximum daily calories and when they exceed it for some unexpected reason, such as being given a pair of large milkshakes in an experiment, they regard their diet as blown for the day. That day is therefore mentally classified as a failure, regardless of what else happens. Virtue cannot resume until tomorrow, so they think, what the hell, 
I might as well enjoy myself today. And the resulting binge often puts on far more weight than the original lapse. It's not rational, but dieters don't even seem to be aware of how much damage these binges do, as demonstrated in a follow-up experiment by Janet Polivy, Herman's longtime collaborator. Once again, hungry dieters and non-dieters were brought into the lab, and some of the dieters were given food with enough calories to put them over the daily limit. Later, the entire group was served sandwiches cut into quarters. Afterward, and unexpectedly, everyone was asked how many sandwich quarters he or she had eaten. Most of the people answered the question with no trouble. After all, they'd just finished eating, and they knew how many sandwiches they'd taken. But one group was notably clueless. The dieters who'd been given enough food to exceed their daily limit. Some of them overestimated, and some underestimated. As a result, they were much further off the mark than either the non-dieters or the dieters who were still under their daily food limit. As long as the diet wasn't busted for the day, the dieters tracked what they were eating. But once they broke the diet and succumbed to the what-the-hell effect, they stopped counting and became even less aware than non-dieters of what they were eating. As we know, monitoring is the next step in self-control after setting a goal. But how can dieters do that if they stop keeping track of what they eat? One possible alternative would be to heed the body's signals that it's had enough sustenance. But for dieters, that turns out to be yet another losing strategy. The Dieters Catch-22 Humans are born with an innate gift for eating just the right amount. When an infant's body needs food, it sends a signal through hunger pangs. When the body has had enough food, the infant doesn't want to eat anymore. Unfortunately, children start to lose this ability by the time they enter school, and it continues to decline later in life for some people, often the ones who need it the most. Why this occurs has been puzzling scientists for decades, starting with some research in the 1960s that revolutionized the study of eating. In one experiment, Researchers rigged a clock on the wall of a room where people could munch on snacks during the afternoon as they filled out stacks of questionnaires. When the clock ran fast, the obese people ate more than others because the clock signaled to them that it must be getting close to dinner time and therefore they must be hungry. Instead of heeding their body's internal signals, they ate according to external cues from the clock. In another study, researchers varied the kinds of snacks that were offered sometimes offering shelled peanuts and sometimes whole peanuts. It didn't seem to matter to the normal-weight people who ate about the same number of nuts either way. But the obese people ate far more when they were offered the shelled nuts, which apparently sent a stronger come-and-get-it message. Once again, the obese people responded more strongly to external cues, and researchers initially hypothesized it was the cause of their problem. They became obese because they ignored their body's internal signals of being full. It was a reasonable theory, but eventually researchers realized that they were confusing cause and effect. Yes, obese people ignored their inner cues, but that's not why they became obese. It worked the other way. Their obesity made them likely to go on diets, and their diets caused them to rely on external instead of internal cues. For what is a diet but a plan imposing external rules? Dieters learn to eat according to a plan, not to their inner feelings and cravings. Dieting means being hungry a lot of the time, 
even if the marketers of diets are always promising otherwise. More precisely, dieting means learning not to eat when you are hungry, preferably by learning to ignore those feelings of hunger. You mainly try to tune out the start eating signal, but the start and stop signals are intertwined, so you typically lose touch with the stop eating signals too, particularly if the diet tells you exactly how much to eat. You eat by the rules, which works fine as long as you stick to them. But once you deviate from the rules, as just about everyone does, you have nothing left to guide you. That's why, even after downing a couple of big milkshakes, dieters and obese people not only continue, but increase their eating. The milkshakes fill them up, but they still don't feel full. They have only the one bright line, and once they have passed it, there are no more limits. Now, you could argue that the real lesson of these experiments is that dieters shouldn't take part in experiments involving milkshakes. If they didn't go into the lab and drink all those calories, then they wouldn't cross their bright line and break their daily diet. So if the dieters could just follow their own rules all the time, if they never exceeded the daily limit, then they'd never succumb to the what-the-hell effect. Sure, they'd feel hungry, but they'd never go on a binge as long as they had the willpower to observe the rules. All of which makes a certain sense, but only until you actually begin testing those dieters' willpower with movies, ice cream, and M&Ms, as Kathleen Voss and Todd Heatherton did in a series of experiments. The psychologists recruited young women, all chronic dieters, and showed them a classic tearjerker, the scene in terms of endearment in which the young mother, who is dying of cancer, says goodbye to her two little sons, her husband, and her mother. Half the dieters were instructed to try to suppress their emotional responses, both internally and externally. The other half were told to let their feelings and tears flow naturally. Afterward, all the dieters filled out questionnaires about their mood, and each was taken individually to a different room for what was ostensibly an unrelated task, rating various kinds of ice cream. The ice cream was presented to each dieter in several large and only partly full tubs, which created the impression that the experimenters would not know how much was in there and how much each woman ate. But of course, the tubs had been carefully weighed beforehand, and they were weighed again afterward. The researchers found that there was no connection between the women's moods and their eating. The ones who were sadder after the movie didn't eat extra ice cream to drown their sorrows. What mattered was not their mood, but rather their will. The dieters who had suppressed emotions during the movie had a much harder time suppressing their appetite. Having depleted their willpower, they ate considerably more ice cream, more than half again as much as the women who'd been free to cry during the film. This is, of course, just one more demonstration of ego depletion. Still, it bears repeating that eating and dieting can be affected by things that seemingly have no connection to them. Trying to hide your feelings while watching a movie drains your willpower, rendering you more likely to overeat later in a separate, ostensibly unrelated context. In another test of the wills of young female dieters, each one was tempted by a bowl brimming with M&Ms that was placed in the screening room with her as she watched a nature documentary, a non-tearjerker about bighorn sheep. For some of the women, the bowl was placed nearby, within easy reach, so they had to continually resist the temptation. For other women, the candy bowl was placed on the other side of the room and hence was easier to resist. Later, in a separate room with no food in sight, 
the women were given impossible puzzles to solve, that standard lab test of self-control. The dieters who had sat within arm's reach of the M&Ms gave up sooner on the puzzles, demonstrating that their willpower had been depleted by the effort of resisting temptation. Clearly, if you're a dieter who doesn't want to lose self-control, you shouldn't spend a lot of time sitting right next to a bowl of M&Ms. Even if you resist those obvious temptations, you'll deplete your willpower and be prone to overeating other foods later. But there's also another way to avoid this problem, as illustrated in the third experiment involving young women and food. This time Voss and Heatherton tested non-dieters in addition to dieters, and a clear distinction emerged. It turned out that the non-dieters could sit next to an array of snacks, Doritos, Skittles, M&Ms, salted peanuts, without using up willpower. Some ate the snacks and some didn't. But either way, they weren't struggling to restrain themselves, so they remained relatively fresh for other tasks. The dieters, meanwhile, gradually depleted their willpower as they fought the urge to break their diet. They went through the same struggle that you see played out at social events when dieters are confronted with fattening food. The dieters can resist for a while, but each act of resistance further lowers their willpower. Then, as they're weakening, they face yet another of the peculiarly maddening challenges of controlling eating. To continue resisting temptation, they need to replenish the willpower they've lost. But to resupply that energy, they need to give the body glucose. They're trapped in a nutritional catch-22. One, in order not to eat, a dieter needs willpower. Two, in order to have willpower, a dieter needs to eat. Faced with this dilemma of whether to eat or not, a dieter might try telling herself that the best option is to slightly relax the diet. She might reason that it's best to consume a little food and try to salve her conscience. Look, I had to break the diet in order to save it. But once she strays from the diet, we know what she's liable to tell herself. What the hell? And then, let the binge begin. Sweet food becomes especially hard to resist because, as we've already seen, self-control depletes the glucose in the bloodstream. If you've ever been on a diet and found yourself unable to shake those intrusive cravings for chocolate or ice cream, this is more than a matter of repressed desires coming back to haunt you. There is a sound physiological basis. The body knows that it has depleted the glucose in its bloodstream by exerting self-control and it also seems to know that sweet-tasting foods are typically the fastest way to get an infusion of energy-rich glucose. In recent lab studies, college students who performed self-control tasks that had nothing to do with food or dieting found themselves having higher desires for sweet foods. When allowed to snack during the next task, those who had previously exerted self-control ate more sweet snacks, but not other salty snacks. If these yearnings seem overpowering, we can suggest a couple of defensive strategies. The first is to use the postponed pleasure ploy. Tell yourself that you can have a small sweet dessert later if you still want it. We'll discuss this ploy later, too. Meanwhile, eat something else. Remember, your body is craving energy because it has used up some of its supply with self-control. The body feels a desire for sweet foods but that is only because that is a familiar and effective way to restore energy. Healthy foods will also provide the energy it needs. It's not what's on your mind, but it should do the trick. 
Remember, too, that the depleted state makes you feel everything more intensely than usual. Desires and cravings are exceptionally intense to the depleted person. Dieting is a frequent drain on your willpower, and so the dieter will frequently be in a depleted state. That will, in effect, turn up the volume on many good and bad things that happen throughout the day. It will also make longings, yes, unfortunately, even the longings for food, which are already there, seem especially intense. This may help explain why, eventually, many dieters seem to cultivate a numbness to their bodies' wants and feelings about food. There is no magical solution to the dieter's catch-22. No matter how much willpower you start off with, if you're a dieter and spend enough time sitting near the dessert buffet telling yourself no, eventually no will probably change to yes. You need to avoid the dessert cart, or better yet, avoid going on a diet in the first place. Instead of squandering your willpower on a strict diet, eat enough glucose to conserve willpower and use your self-control for more promising long-term strategies.